Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. Stories of the fiction that shapes popular culture. Time travel fiction is a small subgenre of science fiction. Science fiction, a small subset of all the many genres and types of literature. Time machines and time travellers are a niche interest. And yet, in another way, all fiction is time travel fiction. All stories rely on time travel, and we as readers barely notice this. Think about any typical story. The order of events in the plot rarely follows that of the real-life chronology. Every time there's a flashback to a character's childhood or a story which opens with a dead body before we jump back two weeks earlier. Every time a chunk of time is skipped as we jump forward a week, a year, a century with just a chapter break or a fade to black. We're constantly negotiating multiple timescales, travelling forwards and backwards through time when we tell and listen to stories. And we do this naturally without really questioning it. So when it comes to actual time travel fiction, stories where the jump back in time is not a flashback, but a character actually moving through time using a machine of some sort, then storytelling and narrative really come into focus. Profound questions about time and history, questions that physicists and philosophers and literary theorists regularly ponder, become commonplace in time travel stories. They become questions that mainstream audiences are engaging with. And all of this was the starting point for Professor David Wittenberg. I'm an um, associate professor of English and comparative literature and cinematic arts at the University of Iowa in Iowa City. He sat down to write a book a few years back, Time Travel, the Popular Philosophy of Narrative, exploring all these ideas in time travel fiction. Here's a popular literature, quite readable and, and accessible, um, you know, not not obscure and experimental, really, in any way, it, you know, very much just a, a mainstream popular literature, even a pulp literature. And yet, all these extremely sophisticated problems of time and space and movement, and even philosophical problems of um, identity and uh, temporality and so on, are coming up constantly, just as one is reading these stories. So to me, it was uh, time travel fiction is a kind of interesting test case of the ways in which we put together time and space in general when we tell stories. And in turn, this is a way of understanding what human beings are and what human beings are storytelling creatures. Right? So I, I think of it as a, I, I, in the book, I call it a, a narratological, time travel fiction as a narratological laboratory. So who were the first scientists in this narratological laboratory? Let's jump back in time a little bit. Time travel stories are relatively new in the popular form that we know it today, you know, where travellers alter the past to change the present or where you can meet a former or future version of yourself. This only really dates back less than a century to the 1920s or thereabouts. But there were some important precursors and some early time travel stories before that. The concept of time travel with a time machine came from the late 19th century. And one of the most common types of 19th century time travel came out of utopian fiction. This is the story of Three Journeys by three people 
in three very different times. The first journey begins in Britain in the early 19th century, the second in the US in Wisconsin in the 1970s, and the third in Dublin at the beginning of the... Sorry, just a quick time leap there, back a year and a half to the WTT episode on Utopia. It's number 18, if you want to have a listen to it all. So travelling to the future, and it was the future that was important here, was about discovering how society had evolved. An important word, because a lot of these ideas came out of evolutionary theory. If you write a utopian work of fiction, you can locate your utopia in another place, as many people did, or the same place, but at a future time. So a traveller could visit the future, explore its wonders, and then point to that as a reason to change the present. The one that's probably still most familiar to people and and was the the most popular one at the time was Edward Bellamy's book, Looking Backward, which is about a character who falls asleep in 1880, thereabouts, and wakes up in 2000, uh, having slept for a century, and then describes the society, the utopian society he encounters, and of course compares it to 1880s Boston. So if, if a writer like that, like Bellamy, was going to write um, a, a realistic and persuasive political allegory about the present and the future and about the possibility of a utopian society, in that context, in the 1880s, in the late 19th century, it, was, uh, it, it had become, I think, incumbent upon writers like that to do it plausibly and, and with a scientific basis and with some um, like really persuasive, uh, realistic-sounding terminology and vocabulary and framework and so on. And the available vocabulary for that was Darwinistic evolution, and that's what, in fact, Bellamy uses. Society evolves, and, and uh, you know, it looks like this now, but it will evolve later into this uh, other thing, and it shares traits with the present and so on. The most famous of all, though, is H.G. Wells' story, The Time Machine, published in 1895. Again, like the Bellamy story, it's about the future evolution of society. In this case, the Society of Eloy and Morlocks in the year 802,701. And it has plenty to say about class and politics in Wells' own time. But Wells' story moves away from mesmerism and inexplicably long periods of sleep and towards something we all recognise now as a standard science fiction trope, the time machine. Wells's time machine is ultimately no more scientific than an extended trance state. It just seems more scientific at a glance. It follows the comment often made about Wells's work, and science fiction more generally, that you need precision in the unessential and vagueness in the essential. It's a very precisely described time machine, which if you look closely doesn't really reveal any detail about how it might work. Much like any time machine, really, which by its very nature must defy the laws of physics if it's to travel back in time. So Wells's time machine popularises this idea of a machine with which a traveller can move forward and backwards in time. But Wells and other writers of this period were more interested in the time being travelled to, as opposed to the effects and plot complications of time travel itself. So if you think of a typical time travel film, so Terminator is travelling from the future to our present to eliminate a threat to their future. Marty McFly trying to manipulate the past so he exists in his own present. The ridiculously complicated timelines of a film like Primer. These very self-conscious time loops, paradoxes and convoluted story structures are what we tend to think of when we think now of time travel. And these all came about with the fundamental changes to physics that took place in the early decades of the 20th century. Einstein publishes the special theory of relativity very early, 1905, and and the general theory of relativity, which is um, uh, 1916, 
Um, but of course, this is published in, in physical journals and for scientists, and it's, it becomes quite a sensation for physicists. Uh, but it doesn't really enter the popular imagination until about 1919 or 1920. The reason for this was the 1919 solar eclipse. Einstein had published his general theory of relativity, but needed a way to test it, and a solar eclipse was the perfect opportunity. Basically, stars near the sun, which normally can't be seen or measured during the day, can be seen briefly during an eclipse. They can then be measured and their position compared to that at nighttime to measure if light bends as it passes the sun, which is what Einstein's theory had predicted. And so, when it was proved to be correct, it was front-page news across the world, and the effect was immediate on the popular imagination. This was a big newspaper story, and, and Einstein suddenly became a major celebrity, and all these uh, journalists and uh, um, popular writers and so started to write about relativity theory and about physics. And through the early 20s, you have a whole series of popularizers. You're, you know, if you go to a bookshelf in, in, in the science section in, in a bookstore today, you'll see a whole series of, of popular descriptions of physics. Basically, they're, they're um, descriptions of, of contemporary physics without the mathematics, because that's the hard part, of course. Okay. Um, and this was already going on in the early 20s. There were a lot of these books. And so a lot of people, and of course, especially people who might have been already interested in science fiction and scientific writing and so on, were reading these things. Um, and so relativity theory and uh, Einstein became... Um, catchwords and became a common vocabulary and people started talking about uh, time dilation and four dimensions and um, the, the relationship between mass and energy and equals mc squared and and uh, the idea of time slowing down as as your acceleration increases and uh, the idea of the relationship between um, uh, speed and, and and mass for instance I mean all of these little ideas but they they all enter the, the the literature when they when they become time fiction becomes science fiction. They all enter the literature in the form of kind of plot opportunities, I think. So many plot opportunities. Oh, I, I, can, I can slow time down until it stops. I can visit the past and meet myself. I can change this event and then figure out what the future will be like. But, you know, I can create a paradox. I can age myself prematurely or, or make myself younger. I mean, there's all sorts of, of plot devices that suddenly I have available to me that I hadn't thought of before. And while obviously a writer may have thought of a plot device like this before, now the story had the backing or at least the veneer of science. Concepts like time dilation, where time in a moving object slows down relative to a stationary object, are fantastic for science fiction stories with space travel. Travel at speeds approaching the speed of light allows for all sorts of interesting ideas. People could travel vast distances across space in short periods of time. Although returning to Earth, they would find time had passed much more quickly than it had on their ship. So essentially, time travel to the future is not massively problematic in terms of the physics. Even in physical theory, in, uh, travel to the future is no problem, really. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you can either go to sleep and suspend animation and, <laughs> and wake up later and you're in the future, or you can just accelerate really fast and, and time slows down for you. And now you, you have essentially entered the future. <laughs> mm. um, it, you know, time dilation is not a problem for, uh, for physicists. Travel to the past, on the other hand, is much more problematic. Before traveling to the past, though, I want to talk about the present. And I wanted to take a quick break to remind you that this show is completely free to listen to. It takes so, so long to make an episode, and it is entirely supported by kind and generous people like you, if you're already a patron. 
Or maybe you, if you'd like to become one. If you head to patreon.com slash WTTE, you can learn about how to sign up. You can get access to bonus materials, sneak previews, lots more personalized WTTE things. And of course, you are helping me to make the show even bigger and better. So patreon.com slash WTTE. Thanks. Back to the present, past, future, I don't know, wherever we were. The problem with traveling to the past is all of the paradoxes it causes. The so-called grandfather paradox asks what would happen if you traveled to the past and killed your grandfather. Either it's simply not possible, because if you kill your grandfather, then you can't be born to go back and kill your grandfather. But then if you do travel back in time, what is stopping you from actually doing this action? Or else maybe it is possible, but then how are you doing it? Because if you're never born, then there's no you to go back and kill your grandfather, but you're clearly here doing it, so uh, etc, etc. You get the idea. Or, or don't. Don't worry, these are not problems with solutions exactly. And there are lots of different loops and paradoxes like this, and plot possibilities, of course. The 2012 film Looper uses a lot of these ideas very creatively, if sometimes a little disturbingly. So, for example, one scene involves forcing a future character to go to an address by cutting it into his arm so it appears as a scar in the future, and then amputating body parts so they disappear in the future, sort of blackmailing him to do as they need. So these types of stories began in the 1920s. The writer that I start with uh, in the 20s is one that, that people are not likely to read today, partly because I guess he's not a really especially good writer, but he was a, a foundational writer for Hugo Gernsback, who is the guy who, who created um, the, uh, the, pulp fiction, the pulp magazine Amazing Stories, which is very often pointed to as, as the first major exclusively science fiction pulp magazine, in some ways the origin of the genre. As you may know all about from episode 28 on Pulp Fiction. And he, in his first issue of Amazing Stories, he published uh, this story called The Man from the Atom by G. Peyton Wurtenbaker. Wurtenbaker is not a, not a, a name. You, he's not, not like Asimov and Heinlein and Ursula Le Guin that you sort of recognize right away. But mm. um, it, it to me, what the, the story "Man from the Atom," uh, which is about a character who travels to um, an alternative universe and figures out a way to return, and so on, it is it looks something like the origin of of that kind of uh, paradox science fiction genre. Um, and when you get into the '30s, it, it's that's when you get the the heyday of what's usually now called hard science fiction. Hard science fiction is science fiction that's more rigorously based on science than other forms. So, if writers who wanted to create stories that were as scientifically accurate as possible were admitting time travel as a device in their work, it kind of says a lot about how it was seen at that time. And writers like Robert Heinlein, who is then publishing under the name Anson McDonald, Isaac Asimov. Um, uh, Fritz Leiber, all of the writers we now probably point to and, and think of as the the, uh, the foundational writers of hard science fiction, they start writing time travel, time loop, and time paradox stories. And around, I would say, around World War II, uh, early '40s, this is kind of the peak of this genre. Everybody's writing time travel, loop, paradox stories, and and stories in which. You know, there are like the, the, one of the famous ones is Robert Heinlein's By His Bootstraps, in which there are five or six characters, all of whom turn out to be the same character, um, kind of looping back on himself and reproducing himself and so on. Um, but it's really like, I, I guess I'd say that the late 1930s, 1940s is where this, this type of story really reaches its, its, 
apex. There's, a, there's dozens and dozens. It should be said that science fiction was definitely not the only type of literature fascinated with time travel. Physicists were exploring time and space in the early 20th century, but so were philosophers and other thinkers. This was also the period of modernism. Writers and painters and other artists were defamiliarizing, experimenting, playing with these radical new concepts of time that Einstein and others had uncovered. So a work like James Joyce's Ulysses is full of references to and influences from contemporary physics. And so it continued until, as before, new scientific theories suggested new ways in which time travel might work, at least in theory. In the 1950s and 60s, new ideas about quantum mechanics posited the idea of multiverses or multiple simultaneously existing universes. In the late 50s, the American physicist Hugh Everett proposed the many worlds interpretation. Fun fact, he's the father of Mark Oliver Everett, or E, the lead singer in the band The Eels. This idea, one of several interpretations of quantum mechanics, holds that every possible outcome of an event exists in its own universe. And suddenly a whole new world, or many worlds, of time travel tales opened up. So that... Welcome to Words to That Effect. I'm your host, Connor Reed, and this week... Good evening, listeners, and a very warm welcome to you all for this week's episode of Words to That Effect. I'm CR2193 with program file EP40, Words to That Effect, transmitting subject matter of... Now, if you're a science, if you're a science fiction writer who is especially interested in scientific rigor and writing stories that are physically consistent... But, you know, to, to put it in a nutshell, that a physicist would read and, and not cringe at, <laughs> right? <laughs> which, which is true of a lot of science fiction writers, especially after the 1950s. Um, then suddenly this, this mode of storytelling, parallel universes, multiple universes, starts to become a possible um, plot device, right? I mean, you can now use this and not just look like a fantasy writer or not just look like a fabulist, right? Um, and you start to get a lot of, of these stories. And in fact, it, it is the case that, that in physics, the notion of uh, multiple universes or a, what's sometimes called a megaverse or a multiverse, parallel worlds and so on, has become like, you know, a, a fairly standard idea that, that people talk about and speculate about and theorize. Um, so there is a way in which uh, you can now, since, since, let's say, the 1960s, you can write parallel universe stories um, and, uh, and not sacrifice your scientific street cred. Or you can not write science fiction, but still use devices borrowed from these stories. There are time travel horror tales. There are action adventure stories. You can hardly forget the Van Damme 94 classic Time Cop. Time loop stories from Groundhog Day to Netflix's recent Russian Dolls. There are numerous romance novels and films where time travel and parallel worlds are used to consider how relationships have developed or gone wrong or what might have been if different decisions had been made. From Woody Allen's Midnight in Paris to Audrey Niffenegger's best-selling novel The Time Traveler's Wife to the 2013 romantic comedy about time. That kind of story, whether it's in science fiction or in, in straightforward romance literature or in, or in rom-com or in pop comedy or anything, you know, that, that's... That's available now, right? Because of this this uh, moment in, let's say, nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies, I think. And there's also comedy. I tend to like the ones that are parodies or comedies, 
um, or very self-conscious forms of narrative than the ones that take themselves too seriously. I mean, one, one of my favorite films from recent years is Hot Tub Time Machine. <laughs> yeah. I think it's quite, quite quite a brilliant film, actually. I was also thinking recently of that sketch from the comedy show That Mitchell and Webb Look, which I was then trying to find on YouTube, but couldn't find it anywhere. So basically, there are a group of people having a meeting when one of them needs to go to the bathroom. And so one of the remaining people suggests, you know, they continue the meeting, but they all agree that, no, no, you know, th- they'll wait. And then it's just all of them waiting for this guy to come back from the bathroom. And it's really strange and weird and awkward. Or then there's the unintentionally ridiculous parts of the TV show 24, where the scriptwriters realise that if they wanted to have a character from L.A. join someone in, say, Washington, then they'd have to cut to these dramatic split screens with the clock counting down. And one of the stories would just be a guy sitting on a plane for five episodes. Now, these are not exactly what you'd call time travel stories, but 24 and that Michelin Web sketch, they kind of highlight and make fun of the conventions of how we use time in storytelling. Which brings us back to the narratological laboratory, whether in early utopias, classic time travel tales from the 20s, multiverses of the 60s, or in the contemporary fiction of writers like Dean Francis Alfar or Nalo Hopkinson, two other authors Professor Wittenberg recommended. Time travel literature allows us to imagine alternative futures, to understand our own history and our societies, to conceptualise scientific and philosophical ideas of time and space and to be endlessly creative with narrative and storytelling itself. Which brings us to the end of... When you look at a, a, a time travel story, which is... Stories of the fiction. Stories of the fiction. Stories of the fiction. Stories of the fiction. For another week of words to that effect, thank you so much for listening. Special thanks to my guest this week, Professor David Wittenberg. I've put links to his book on this topic and his bio on the website. And that website is wttepodcast.com, where you can find everything you need about this and every episode. And you can find links to the Patreon page, or you can just go to patreon.com slash WTTE. Join up, support the show, and get access to lots of extra little episodes. You can follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at words that effect. And I'm on Twitter at CEDread, C-E-D or E-I-D. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, and we have just launched a load of new shows, so go check them out at headstuff.org. Music this week was by Blue Dot Sessions. Oh, and the WTTE and She Done It live show is on this Saturday in Birmingham at Pod UK. So if you're going to be at that, come by and say hi. I'm really looking forward to it. And finally, as always, spread the word. Tell your friends. Help me find more listeners who you know would enjoy this show. And that's it. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in two weeks. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.